This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I am so excited to welcome anthropologist and author Sarah Forbes to the show. Sarah set out on a path to be an anthropologist with a focus on gender and somehow found her way as the curator for the Museum of Sex in New York City. Sarah told her story in her book and memoir, Sex in the Museum, and now her new project that she's taken on is understanding and looking at sex in motherhood. In preparing for this interview and thinking about the relationship between motherhood and sex, I couldn't help but jokingly say to Sarah, is motherhood not where sex goes to die? There is such a shift in our relationships and expression of our sexual selves when we find ourselves in motherhood, feeling touched out, bogged down by the invisible load, and all of the different things that come with motherhood. Today, Sarah is here to help us understand the historical and cultural relationship between sex and motherhood, the impact that modern motherhood has on our sexuality, how desire and arousal change as we enter into motherhood, in ways that we can reclaim and embrace our sexuality in this stage of our life. Whether you are the high desire partner in your relationship or the low desire partner, there is something in this episode for you to think about and explore. Let's tune into my conversation with Sarah. Do you ever feel like you just wanna hide in a dark, quiet closet? You are not alone. As a mom of three boys, I know what it's like to feel overstimulated, touched out, and easily triggered. As moms, we often don't get the chance to turn down the noise, walk away, or find a moment to regroup and recharge our batteries. But we don't have to live in constant overload. We can learn the skills to manage our own response to the noise, mess, and touch. We can stay calm and grounded so that we can be more present and connected without feeling like we're always in fight or flight mode. Dr. Reem, Psych Mommy, and I created a workshop to help you learn those skills, a workshop called Managing Overstimulation in Motherhood. You'll learn why you get so overstimulated, how to recognize your triggers, and the simple changes you can make in your environment that can help. We'll also teach you practical tips to keep calm and walk through your own personalized overstimulation plan so you can manage your reactions in and out of the moment. With lifetime access to the recording, you can watch at your own pace and revisit the workshop whenever you need. It's time to take charge of your senses instead of letting them take charge of you. Visit happyasamother.co slash overstimulation to register today for instant access. That's happyasamother.co slash overstimulation. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. 
Okay, let's dive in. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show today. We were just discussing you're across the pond and in the UK. So making the time difference work and being here with us, I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to have you here. No, I'm really excited to be a part of the conversation. I am like so curious how someone becomes a curator of a sex museum in New York City. Like I just, we got to unpack your story before we get into all the the goods and all the sex and motherhood and all of that. Like, please tell me a little bit about your journey and how that came about. I mean, it's definitely been a surreal journey. It's not what I thought I was going to do with my my career, my education, all these these different things. But I guess basically the the long and the short of the story is I was 22 years old. I was jumping right into a grad school program in anthropology with a focus in gender. And so if you asked 22-year-old Sarah what she thought she was going to do with her life, I was going to study childbirth cross-culturally. I was going to study how children learn their gender roles within various communities and cultures. I thought I was going to live in the Amazon and have this like incredibly adventurous journey. And my grad school apartment was just around the corner from the newly opened Museum of Sex in New York. Mm. And so my whim of dropping off my resume uh, turned into becoming a researcher. Then I became assistant curator. And then when I was done with my master's, I was offered this incredible role of curator. And I was there for a total of 12 years. I made over 20 exhibitions. So I unexpectedly, you know, got thrust into this, you know, world of sexpertise, I guess. And it's interesting because I do feel like gender and norms and like it all intersects in a way, doesn't it? Like I feel like here today we're going to be talking about sex and motherhood. And I feel like that intersects with our gender and what we've been taught and how we feel we should act as women. Like there's so many layers to that. Yeah. I mean, I feel really blessed that my background is in anthropology. So anthropology is the study of of culture. It's the study of people. And, you know, I didn't plan it, but sexuality has actually been an incredible avenue to study. You study the human animal, what we do, why we do it, how we think about these things. And a lot of my work is really rooted in history. And, you know, the history of sex is one that has been particularly complicated for women and mothers. Hmm. In what ways? Like what things have sort of surfaced? Well, you know, female sexuality throughout history has really been something that has been controlled and there's been all these rules because it's all about inheritance. It's all about the legitimacy of, you know, kind of like a patriarchal system. So if you're controlling female sexuality and then you have the history of medicine that gets really wrapped in to that. And then the history of childbirth, you know, how you're able to enact your sexuality, who's allowed to do what. Mm. You know, you you live a life and then all of the puzzle pieces start to come together. So the gender stuff, the history stuff, the sexuality stuff, and then you know, I became a mother while I was working at the Museum of Sex. So I had this really unusual career. And then motherhood became, you know, part of myself and my identity. Mm-hmm. In preparation for this interview, I was like, like, what is the relationship between like sex and motherhood? You know, in my mind, just like reflecting and trying to like wrap it around. And, and this sort of like sarcastic part of me was like, well, like motherhood is kind of the place where sex goes to die. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like, like we go from like having time to like spontaneously develop arousal and desire and enjoying each other to just 
like care work and, and the loads that we carry and feeling touched out and overstimulated. And so I feel like the relationship between sex and motherhood is a very complicated one. It's, I mean, it's incredibly complicated and there's so many taboos as well. So you have, you know, and back to kind of that history is that what we've learned through our families, we've learned through our culture, what motherhood is supposed to look like. And motherhood is supposed to be the ultimate example of being a martyr. It's about being selfless. It's about being invisible. It's about the opposite of prioritizing your needs and your pleasure. And so we have those kind of taboos. There's these dichotomies of the virgin and the whore. And we, you know, we have all of these things that get enacted almost to their like pinnacle when it talks about motherhood and sexuality. Mm-hmm. There are these two words that are supposed to be separate, but also are deeply interwoven in each other. I mean, sex, you know, cannot lead to motherhood. I mean, they are they are definitely wrapped in a history together. Yeah, it makes me think about comments that I've heard. Inevitably, sex and desire comes up in the weekend polls that I host in my Instagram stories every single weekend. It's like anyone else in a sexless marriage or what's the frequency at which you're having sex? And and everybody wants to navigate and understand because our relationships are also going through an adjustment too during this time, right? And one of the things and the themes that has come up is how difficult it is to reconcile that our body has become a bit of a utility in especially the, the pregnancy and postpartum period. It is creating life. Potentially, we're nursing and, and breastfeeding. And breasts, maybe even, were for like sexual, you know, encounters before that are now for feeding our infant. And so there is this weird shift that happens for a lot of the women that I speak with. Is that something that you've encountered or looked at? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think that word utility is a really charged word. And I think it's not just about our bodies, but I think it's kind of modern motherhood in general right now. Like we exist as this utility that serves our family. Mm. And so of course our sexuality would be deeply impacted by that same, that same vibe, that same, if we're kind of being crushed under the mental load and we're being, you know, the demands on modern motherhood, I think are more severe than any other generation that's ever existed. We have a completely unique relationship with technology. You know, people talk about lack of village. I mean, there's so many factors We're the most educated group of mothers that's ever existed. Mm -hmm. You know, we've absorbed a different place of what feminism means, what we expect from our lives, what we expect from our relationships. We've most likely had opportunities for sexual experiences maybe our mothers and grandmothers could never have fathomed mm-hmm. in their you know, their lives. So there's so many things that contribute to modern motherhood really becoming this very utilitarian exchange. And I think that it's zapping. I mean, desire is just one part of the things that it's really you know, sucking from our identities and how we enjoy this identity in this chapter of our lives. Mm-hmm. My business partner, Psyched Mummy, and I have a workshop on, we actually have a, a bundle on resentment and like desire and intimacy. And in that we go through some of the physical desire pieces. But in that, we did a sex survey and sort of asked people about their sex lives and the frequency and understanding the barriers that get in the way. And we open a part of that workshop with the, like understanding our own rule book around sex as women. I think that's its own sort of comes with its own set of rules or 
what it means to be ladylike, what it means to be, you know, a good woman or a whatever. Like we have these rule books in our own minds that are influenced by our upbringing and our culture and our religion and, and all of that. And then in motherhood, I think we also carry a rule book, like you had said, where we're martyring ourselves or we're putting others' needs first or we're so many things in our rule books that are, are shaped sort of from our individual experiences. I mean, and I would say it's, it's not just us. It's also our partners because our partners have been raised within various cultural beliefs or various religious beliefs. You know, I remember I became a new mom and everybody knew what my professional background was. And so everybody felt comfortable sharing with me what was going on in their sex lives. And I remember one mom came to me and her desire hadn't actually changed, but her husband, her partner's desire had because he had grown up in a home where the mother was this, you know, on a pedestal. You couldn't think of her as, as a sexual being. So it's definitely, it's the way that, you know, we've been raised to think about it. But also if you are in a partnered relationship, if you are having sex with another person, it's also what they're bringing to the table on the same topic. Right. Some moms will say, I'm the high desire partner and it's my my husband or my partner who is struggling maybe because they're pregnant and they don't want to like interfere in any way or there's so many layers to that. I'm curious, like in your experience at the museum, is there an understanding between the difference in how male versus female desire arousal? Are there different understandings there that we can put into context in our minds? You know, I think that for a long time, there was this kind of, you know, there was, you know, the female brain, the male brain, male sexuality, female sexuality. And I think what we've kind of moved towards is that a lot of that was actually just being navigated by what we were culturally allowed to express. Interesting. So it's not that women don't like sex as much as men do. It's just the social consequences of being a sex positive or stating what you want. There's There was just too many taboos around it. So you'll even have, let's say, you know, consuming erotica or pornography, you know, kind of as a spectrum of content that there's, you know, women that are just as interested in exploring this. They might want specific kind of content. They might not like the kind of very male gaze created content that is really kind of proliferating, but that doesn't mean that they don't want to be having sex or they're not turned on by various things. And I think that, you know, some of those are kind of like old fashioned ideas of sexuality that just they really hinder our communication with each other, our expression, our, their exploration and knowledge of our own bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that in trying to understand, I've heard different therapists who work in this area talking about how male and female anatomy and like desire, like the cycle of desire and how sex and arousal are initiated is it sort of differs between a male and female. And, and I, we're sort of using very gendered norms here. And I know that, you know, we can break outside of these things. I think what I'm wrestling with here and what I'm trying to like put into words is that a lot of women come to me and they say things like they, they have low desire or they're struggling with desire or finding the time or you know, too tired at the end of the day to engage in this way with their partners. And like the process of getting aroused and being in the mood for sex is very different for them than their partner who like the wind blows and they're like ready to be all over them, you know? So can we help moms who maybe struggle with that piece? Like how can we break through some of that to 
really want to lean into this experience and, you know, like reignite that flame again? I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think we all need a little space and time to kind of have that erotic vision available to us. You know, first of all, if you're exhausted, so Mm -hmm. you haven't had sleep, you feel that a kid's going to run through the door at any moment, you're thinking about your to-do list, you're not really in a space to be open for a sexual encounter. And, you know, back to modern motherhood, time is at a premium. And, you know, and these obviously are generalizations, but female sexuality needs a little bit more time for arousal to happen. Giving yourself that time for your body to kind of, you know, interact with what's happening. But it's no, it can't be this just like immediate, quick, two seconds. And we don't always have that time and space as mothers. Mm -hmm. And we're not always prioritizing making that time or space. Right. Yeah. I think that's the piece that I'm like trying to lean into because in our workshop, we talk about how like, and in the survey that we ran, is your expectation that as a mom or as a woman or whatever, that you will spontaneously feel desire and then want to initiate sex? Or do you know that for your own body to like warm up and and for you to get in the headspace that it takes some like intention going in to warm yourself up to get there? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, and that's that that porn idea that it's spontaneous desire and that's not mm, reality. Okay. And so if that's what we think sex is, no, it's not going to be that spontaneous. It's going to, you know, particularly for female sexuality, it's going to need a, a little time and space. And so if we think we're failing because we're not instantly ready to go, that's also it's gonna it's a very bad negative feedback loop with the experience. Right. Cause like what happens is like, well, I'm not feeling spontaneously aroused and therefore like sex isn't really maybe on my mind or I'm too tired or I'm preoccupied with the invisible load or whatever might be happening. And then so we don't make space for it because we're not feeling the desire. And then so like I feel like sometimes this pattern can ensue where if we're not making the time to really create that desire and like like give that space, as you said then we're in this pattern of just maybe turning our partner down or we're both too busy or and in this circumstance and using the you know mom as the higher desire partner it's not always the case but i think that it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way doesn't it where well i'm not feeling desire so i'm not going to create the space but if we don't create the space we don't allow for that time yeah and then if you're if all the sex you're having is kind of this like obligatory just like transactional, functional sex, you're probably not going to enjoy it very much. And then you're probably going to want to avoid it. Mm. And, you know, I think we're also talking about long-term partnership here. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to have just this spontaneous arousal with somebody you've potentially known for a very long time. And maybe other parts of your relationship are, you know, having young children can be very like transactional. Have you done this? Have you done that? It's not exactly... Like, hey, how are you as a person? How are you? Like, it's not taking that kind of time for you to kind of breathe and be a person that's a mother, but also an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's transactional. It's like ships passing in the night. There is not a lot of space when it comes to, especially parents of young children, right? I feel like I want to like step backwards a little bit a moment because I'm like, okay, you curated these exhibits. Like, I'm so curious what these exhibits are, what they look like, like what is involved (laughs) in exhibits in the Museum of Sex. Like, I'm so curious. You know, and what was wonderful is that the exhibitions that I made could be about anything. So I could take fine art and talk about the history of sex. I could talk about science. So one exhibition I did was called The Sex Lives of Animals. 
And it was about all of the non-reproductive sex that occurs in the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. And all of these ideas are really like we have this preconceived notion of what sex is. And then all of these exhibitions would kind of flip it on its head and or talk about histories that were hidden or what people are really doing behind closed doors. I also did one exhibition based on a book called A Billion Wicked Thoughts. And it was the research of two computational neuroscientists that looked at a million, a billion web searches and to get some real truths about sex and sexuality. What are you looking for when you think nobody else is looking? Mm. You know, and it's so hard because in this, you know, 12 years at the Museum of Sex, my main takeaways were one, communication is the key. It's essential. If you're not communicating about what works for you, what you're interested in, then lots of times you seek it elsewhere or you feel embarrassed, you feel distanced from your partner. When if you had just communicated, maybe that partner would have been equally interested in X, Y, Z. There's a lot of sexual shame that prevents us from sharing our real thoughts. So I was exposed to a lot of that kind of hidden world. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine it's quite mind opening. Like I think about and I, I sort of openly share that I come from this like evangelical Christian background, which I am slowly like working my brain through. And with that comes a very clear rule book on what sexuality looks like before marriage, what it should look like sort of in marriage. It's like it's prescribed to you this what this experience should be. And while, you know, some may live within their religion or their traditions and that may suit them, for me, there was a lot of shame then when it came to entering into a relationship with my partner and navigating, oh, this is something I've been told is bad for my entire life. And now how do I reconcile being this sexual human being within my marriage, within motherhood? And so these rule books or these norms that we've internalized, they really play such a role in how like free or present we allow ourselves to be with our partners. And I'm so glad you bring up this point because we're kind of just, you know, we're talking about motherhood and like the place where sex goes to die. Mm. But we're also assuming that everybody was having amazing sex beforehand, mm. that everybody was having the most incredible empowered sex and everybody felt great about their bodies. And then all of a sudden it changed. You know, we are navigating that, you know, a lot of individuals didn't have that space. They didn't have comprehensive sex education. They weren't taught about pleasure. They weren't taught about exploring their bodies, knowing what works for their body. And particularly, you know, one thing is once you kind of transition to motherhood, you have a whole new body to explore. And, you know, kind of this, you know, there's lots of theorists who talk about matrescence, the birth of a mother, mm -hmm. and that you become a new person in your identity, your social role, and every single factor. But you also have a new sexuality to go along with that. And if you don't take the time to get to know that new person and your partner get to know that person, of course, there's going to be an even stronger divide on top of exhaustion, mental load, ETC, you know? As busy moms, the last thing we need is more on our to-do list. It's hard enough to remember who needs what packed for school when the next doctor's appointment is, and when to register for events, let alone remembering to call and cancel subscriptions that drain your finances every month. That's why Rocket Money is so great. 
Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. You can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you notice something that you don't want, Rocket Money can help you cancel it with a few taps. They even try to negotiate lowering your bills for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash momwell. That's rocketmoney.com slash momwell. Feeding the family is one of the most all-consuming parts of the invisible load. Meal planning, shopping, trying to balance nutrition, finding the time to actually cook with little ones needing your focus and attention can be so stressful. But Factor makes it easy. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals take the mental load off your plate, providing pre-prepared, chef-crafted meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to select from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan plus veggie, and more. You can even choose from over 55 nutrition-packed add-ons, including snacks and smoothies. With Factor, there's no prep and no mess. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat in just two minutes. That means no cooking and no cleanup, which is great for busy moms. You can choose the schedule that works for you and your family. Choosing six to 18 meals per week and pausing or rescheduling your deliveries is quick and easy. Reclaim some time and reduce your mental load with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use the code momwell50 to get 50% off. That's code momwell50 at factormeals.com slash momwell50 to get 50% off. If your house is anything like mine, breakfast is the most frantic meal of the day. We all want to start the day off with a wholesome meal for our kids, but the time crunch makes it difficult. Magic Spoon helps relieve the morning rush with tasty cereals, high in protein for a great start to the day. Magic Spoon offers a variety pack with four delicious flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And it has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs per serving. Each Magic Spoon cereal is made with wholesome ingredients and no artificial flavors or dyes. And since it's gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free, it's great for a variety of dietary needs. Go to magicspoon.com slash momwell to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code momwell at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund you your money, no questions asked. Try a delicious bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash momwell and use the code momwell to save $5. It makes me think back even before partnership. Like I think about even in childhood, like using like 
anatomically correct words with children because I don't even know, like I'm trying to think about when I maybe heard the word clitoris for the first time. Like when did that even enter my awareness? Like I could not even tell you, but I know it wasn't when I was young, like knowing my body or growing up in certain religious environments or different homes where people have a lot of shame around masturbation and understanding their own body. So not only like, the, and that's before we even get in partnership, exactly. right? Like the, there is already these beliefs or these things that we form about our sexuality or our body or the shame or the comfort we feel like long before we're even in these partnered relationships, I would say. Yeah. And that's a big part. And so one part of, um, so I'm writing a book about motherhood and sexuality called Mama Sex. Yeah. And so one chunk, as I'm talking about modern motherhood, what is all the angst of our generation, what makes modern motherhood so complicated, so complex, why we're so exhausted, why we're so depleted, all of that. But the next section, you know, I'm putting my little historic anthropology hat on is we need to think about the versions of motherhood and sexuality that we have absorbed through our culture and our families. And our maternal lineage is one of those, like, you know, how did our mothers talk about bodies? How do they talk about motherhood? How do they talk about sexuality? Mm. Because we've absorbed all of that. You know, I think about myself. I had my two great grandmothers alive until I was about 12 years old. Mm. So I had so many generations of thought and attitudes towards life, but also what it means to be a woman. What, what kind of mother, you know, when should I get married? You know, I definitely was raised in a household like, you want to get married as young as possible. Mm. You know, you want to have a family. And so all of those factors, whether it's about marriage, motherhood, babies, bodies, it's part of this, this stew of how we interact with our sexuality as mothers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had conversations with my husband about how like Sometimes I will be very open, I think, to maybe the discomfort of the like adults in the room when they ask about like a body part. And I will say, oh, like that's a vulva. And then every, all the adults will like whip their heads around like, what, like, what are you saying out loud, you know? But I don't ever want them to experience shame around something that is so natural for them and a curiosity that comes with learning using the correct words, giving context to their curiosity and like bodies are are fascinating and they change over time and these things start to happen. And because I think that in a lot of ways I've been made to feel shame like unintentionally. And then also mm -hmm. I've seen the impact it's had on on friends and and you know clients where sexuality has been a really uh like shamed experience. And, and I've, I've had a number of clients say something like, I remember when I stumbled across pornography for the first time and I was like eight, seven, eight, nine, ten. I was so curious and I couldn't understand like what was happening with these people's bodies. And then I was told I was like dirty or how could you or where did you find that? And like they were just shut right down. Right. And so I think that these narratives about who we are as like sexual beings start so young in our experiences. Absolutely. I mean, and that's why it's so important that porn is not our sex educator. Mm. Like pornography is not going to, it's not real sex. Most of the time it's not even real, how real bodies, it's, it's not anything about female pleasure, you know? And so if there's a gap and you're, we don't learn these things, then, you know, society, culture, pornography, which is like so pervasive, mm. that becomes our educator. 
And so I think a lot of mothers, they, they're, you know, we're at this place in kind of the motherhood ethos that we want our children to feel empowered. We want them to feel empowered in every which way that they can and knowing their bodies and also wanting to help protect our children. So children who know the actual words for their body parts right. and can advocate for their safety and say, you know, like, and also this idea, it's all part of wanting the best for our children. And so sometimes, you know, giving them that information is part of that, but also role modeling, you know, what that looks like. So we're like, we want you next generation to have, you know, these positive things, but, you know, every day is a new opportunity to bring those things into our own lives. And we don't have to just let it be the next generation that can have those beautiful successes. Yeah. As you mentioned, like using the correct words in order to prevent and keep safe. And this is a big part of preventing abuse and sexual abuse even, right, is giving our children the language to describe their bodies as a preventative measure. So there's so many reasons why beyond just like, you know, sexuality and and, then safety and all of these things to be having these open conversations. And I know that it's something that I've prioritized, however awkward it will be into all of my teenage son's years when they get there. You know, I'm sure there will be moments, but a commitment to just being open and being real with them. And needing to know our bodies because it's, you know, it's about sexuality, but it's also advocating for our health and well-being. And so Mm. if you're thinking about your process of birth and being able to advocate for yourself, being able to name your parts is definitely a part of that conversation. And, you know, there's definitely a percentage of of individuals who've had traumatic births and they've had pelvic floor issues because of the births that they've had and that directly impacting their mama sex lives. And so that's, mm. you know, it's another piece of this huge puzzle. Right. Like the pain that can come or others I've heard is like some of the incontinence that can come postpartum. Like our bodies do change in some of these ways. It's a rediscovering of what feels good and what doesn't feel good and how can we interact with our partner postpartum. Yeah, we've normalized, you know, all of these things like, oh, it's normal. I mean, it's common, so it's normal. And that's Mm. not the case. I mean, you shouldn't be having incontinence. You shouldn't be having, you know, but lots of our medical systems don't set us up for success. If, you know, when I had my babies, I didn't know what a pelvic floor therapist was. Right. You know, times are changing and we're getting more information. But I think there's a lot of people who don't have the access to the care and the practitioners they need because so much is focused on the baby and there's not enough focus on this mother who's going through a huge physiological, emotional, psychological, social experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a pelvic floor physio therapist on the Vagina Whisperer. I don't know what episode number, but we'll link it in the show notes talking about like a painful sex postpartum and what you can do and and how to go about that. Because you're right, like there are things that we can be doing to recover and claim this part of ourselves back after children. And that's what I'd really love to spend some time on us like unpacking. Here it is. Like, it's so sad in my mind that I'm like, oh, motherhood is the place where like sex goes to die, like initially, and I'm coming out of having three children back to back in like, you know, in the early stages of motherhood, our relationship does go through an adjustment. And research has proven that the frequency at which we have sex and how satisfied partners are with their sex decreases with young children under the age of two or three. But as we start to emerge out of this really challenging and transformative time, how can we start to 
embrace our sexuality in motherhood again. You know, it's back to we were talking about space and time, which feel like Mm. the biggest rarity that you have when you're a mother. But it is trying to find that place where you get to be you as an individual. And I think it's addressing what is in your motherhood that's, I guess, not allowing you to flourish as an individual. So so for some people, it might be a really unequal partnership where Mm. everything is falling on the mother and maybe that's breeding resentment. So, you know, there's a lot of interpersonal stuff, you know, with our dynamic. It's how I feel about myself as a person, this new identity, how I feel about my postpartum body. Yeah, that's a big one. You know, that's a really big one because we live in this, you know, bounce back culture. But what are you bouncing back to? Pretending that you're not a mother Hmm. versus, you know, honoring that you are a mother and you do maybe have a different body. It doesn't mean lesser body. You know, Mm -hmm. so we have to, you know, stop drinking the Kool-Aid of our culture, trying to sell us things to improve us when we don't actually need that. It's okay to be who we are. You know, it's a multi-pronged attack. I think it's thinking about your motherhood, thinking about you as an individual, thinking about your relationship and trying to not just make sex this goal-oriented thing, but also to think about it about intimacy. Like penetration doesn't have to be the end-all, be-all definition of mm. what sex is. And so I mm-hmm. think maybe trying to take some of the, the pressure off and trying to bring a little bit more fun into it. And it, it can grow and build, you know, it can be you know, starting with just holding somebody's hand for a minute. And maybe that starts or, you know, touching somebody in a non-erogenous zone, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe whatever it is for you and your partner or you as an individual, you know, it's kind of linking all of those together. Mm -hmm. I think it's such an important thing that you're bringing up is that there has to be like a trust and a safety and security there to want to invest and reignite and and explore and take part. Because if there are these relational issues, if there is a lack of intimacy and closeness, if there's been a break in the safety or trust within the relationship, you know, you're not really going to want to put yourself out there in this way that feels vulnerable and feels a bit exposing, you know, to your partner. We can only really do that in environments where we feel like we are safe enough to be vulnerable and open, right? So I think that those relational dynamics play such a role in our ability to allow ourselves to be seen by our partner. Yeah, you know, I've been conducting a survey as well, trying to really get some data to make sense of what are the main factors affecting maternal sexuality. And Mm. one of the main ones is moms not feeling supported. They're not feeling supported by their partners. They're not feeling supported by society. They're feeling just like completely abandoned. And like you're talking about this not feeling safe. And then on top of it, they kind of to be this perfect mom, it's, it's, it's killing us. We're exhausted. Our rates of just exhaustion, depletion, you know, just mental space, you know, all of these come to, they're contributing together that, you know, if you're feeling in a vulnerable, exhausted space, mm-hmm. you know, you're probably not mm-hmm. going to be like, hey, rip my clothes off. You know, it's... <laughs> right, right. Yeah, that invisible load playing so much and feeling under-supported. It makes me like, 
however stereotypical or whatever this is, it makes me think about those TikTok videos of the dads or the husbands like closing the dishwasher, like with the dishes loaded and like putting things, like trying to do these like sexy videos of doing care work, which they should be taking part in anyways, but don't get me on that soapbox. But you know how like freeing up space in a mother's mind to allow for these thoughts or fantasies or desire to grow. But we're so, I feel like when you're talking about being undersupported, I I envision like all of these tabs open that have to do with all the care work and all the things we're managing that, you know, the one tab in the hundred that might be about sex or fantasy or exploration of some kind just is so overburdened and overshadowed by all of these other pieces that are at play. So the idea of being able to free up the mental space in some way, and I actually think I've done this in therapy with some clients before where learning tools like grounding and mindfulness, how do we be present? How do we be in our bodies instead of in the future, in the past, in our day? How can we just be with somebody? Whether that starts off, as you said, sexual or whether it starts off with just like feeling the embrace of your partner and how, you know, warm it feels or how they smell or how they whatever, just being practicing, just being, being with each other, right? In that moment. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful. And, you know, there's so much talk about self-care and sometimes that can feel even more stressful. It's like, oh my God, one more thing. I have to, I have to take care of myself and I have to make space to, you know, nurture all of that. And so I, I don't want it to fall into that version of self-care, mm, but mm-hmm. having a positive relationship with sexuality, having a positive relationship with your body, bringing pleasure into your life is a very potent form of self-care. Mm-hmm. It's also a form of activism in a way. I think, you know, if we're, you know, having a kind of pleasure and it's a way that an individual can almost fight against this system this, you know, kind of patriarchal system that really is very hard to navigate through. But it's something that that individual act, like we might not be able to change, you know, so many parts of legislation, we might not be able to change so much ways that, you know, mothers are not supported after with, you know, maternity care, all these different things. But we have this one thing that we can own for ourselves, because it's Mm -hmm. us and our bodies. Mm hmm. I think about some ways that the community, like followers, clients, various people on Instagram have shared, like how they initiate or how they communicate to their partner that they're open or in the mood, or how do we like get on the same page? And there was some really interesting creative ideas that they had. When we're talking about reigniting a flame, sometimes we need to like add, like inject a little like playfulness and humor into our lives, right? Actually, a couple of people have said they have a sex candle. So if the candle is lit, you know, they know that they're going to go to bed at the same time and they're they're both on the same page for that experience. Or others had shared that they might leave like a pair of underwear or some whipped cream or something on the side of the bed or like something that is an indicator that, you know, we have interest and we want to explore or be playful tonight. When we get in this pattern of a partner constantly initiating because maybe they're the higher desire partner and then the other constantly saying like, not tonight or I'm tired, I'm not feeling well, whatever. It kind of gets us in this weird funk that's hard to break out of. But having like playfulness and leaning into some 
communication that sets some signs up or some symbols or some little playful things can be a fun way to just start, as you said, to just start with maybe, and maybe the goal is an intercourse. Maybe that's not the goal. Maybe that's removed off the table entirely, right? Just to be playful and have fun together. Play is such a great word because I think people make sex as it has to be this really serious, like it can and should be playful. And, you know, I think back to one of the exhibitions that I curated at the museum and it was actually all about kink and fetish. Mm. And so I guess maybe even backing up. So our brains are the most potent form of our sexuality. That is where our erotic imaginations, you know, flourish. And so where almost anything can be a turn on for someone. And it's not always the typical you know, things that we think of. And so in a lot of the kink and fetish and BDSM communities, it's all about play and communication. It's maybe you're, you put on a certain costume and you're kind of transported out of who you are normally supposed to be. So it's a little bit freeing hmm. or you bring some kind of toy or prop into it. It's like kind of this world of adults make believe where you're, you're kind of free to play and experience and you know, maybe it's a it's a good mental departure from kind of the mm. load of parenting. Um, right. So maybe it's even a more significant tool to kind of counter the realities that we're inhabiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And playfulness being something that we can only... So this is taking me to a place in my mind where I was speaking with somebody about conflict and navigating conflict. And if you cannot laugh and have humor then you are activated, right? Like you are not feeling safe. You are not feeling comfortable. You're feeling like activated in some way, irritated, upset or whatever. So even letting playfulness be the goal at first that you can both settle into each other's presence and be like kind of silly with each other in itself as just a stepping stone goal is so I think important to create and foster that sense of safety and vulnerability. And then move from there because playfulness is something that in parenthood we are lacking. As we said, it's transactional. It's ships passing in the night. It's maybe tension. It might be resentment. And playfulness is something that we don't get to engage in with each other very often. So I think that that would be such a fun starting point for people to just, without even the expectation of intercourse or sex, just enjoy each other's presence and be silly and see you know, where that can lead you. So Yeah, and try to take pressure, pressure off. Like there's so yeah. much pressure and, you know, when you remove some of those barriers mm-hmm. and there's lots of different barriers to remove in motherhood, but to try and like figure out what your particular barriers are in your particular dynamic and you start to pull those back and there's a lightning that's possible and you're more open, you're more receptive. Mm-hmm. And if you're able to communicate what you like or what's working and, you know, it doesn't have to be this like clinical kind of you can, you can do that communication in a playful way. You can do the experimentation in a playful way. Yeah. And kind of getting to know yourself and getting to know, you know, this new person and this new role that you both inhabit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like reconnecting with each other as parents in a new relationship that has also just transformed as you've entered into parenthood, the two of you. I think that's one of the most unrecognized pieces is how much our relationships transform. Like, you know, we as people transform and we become mothers, we become fathers, but our relationships go through an an adjustment that does not get enough preparation or attention, right? And we have to re-find our footing in those roles with each other. So 
I really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us today and to have these conversations. I love the work that you're doing in the mama sex world. I can't wait to read your book and hopefully have you back when, when it's ready to be released. But until then, where can people find you? You know, it's, it's been so great. I'm so happy that you're one of the few people who's really contributing to that open discourse about motherhood and sexuality, being a part of like a holistic well-being. Mm. Yeah. So if people are, you know, looking for that very specific focus on motherhood and sex, they can find me on Instagram at Mama Sexbook mm-hmm. or on my website, which is mamasexbook.com, where I also have the quiz survey that will help create more data on this really underserved topic. Yeah. And feed the book and the work that you're doing as you write. And you've got your manifesto on the website there as well. So we'll link all of your information in the show notes and in the blog post so people can easily click through and find you. And yeah, thank you again so much for being here today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Wasn't that such an interesting conversation with Sarah? One of the things I love the most about this job or about podcasting and interviewing different people is getting to see motherhood from all of these different perspectives, from the perspective of an anthropologist or a therapist or a gender expert. There's just so many ways and lenses through which we can view motherhood and learn from professionals in this space. If you are struggling with navigating intimacy in the postpartum period, struggling with low desire, or just feeling like there isn't a lot of connection and intimacy between you and your partner, I encourage you to check out my workshop with Psyched Mummy. Our Navigating Intimacy After Children workshop can also be bundled with Unpacking Resentment to form our Reconnect Bundle. There is so much to process through in terms of our desire. There's an emotional component, psychological safety, feeling supported in order to really want to reconnect and be intimate with your partner. So if you're looking for some support or ways to get started with this, make sure you check out that reconnect bundle, happyasthemother.co slash reconnect. I'll see you right back here next week. Same time, same place where we are having Ariel Taylor a fertility therapist and four-time gestational surrogate here to talk to us all about surrogacy. Ariel has such a fascinating story and comes at surrogacy and infertility with two lenses, one of lived experience being a gestational surrogate and egg donor herself, as well as being a social worker and a fertility therapist that works with couples who are going through this journey. You do not want to miss out on Ariel's remarkable story. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.
Hmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.